Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored today to be in dialogue with my guest, Dr. Jay Baruch. He is the author of the new book, Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER, in the Emergency Room, published in Cambridge by MIT Press in 2022. Dr. Baruch is Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Alpert Medical School at Brown University. Dr. Baruch, it's an honor to be in communication with you today. Thank you very much. It's really great to be here, Ari. To begin, uh, kindly tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Were there any formative events in your life that you feel comfortable sharing that that catalyzed the person you would become oh, as an adult? Uh, that's that, that's such a small question, Ari. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm from uh, I'm from New York. I grew up uh, out in sort of the middle part of Long Island, and um, I I think I was a very yeah, very uneventful childhood, um, and uh, you know this. The the I have a, a sister who's two years younger than me, Amy, who's also an emergency physician, um, and uh, but I and you know two loving parents. One was a school teacher. One was an engineer. Um, so you know, pretty at I think average um, and generally sort of happy. If, if, and if if not totally, um, nothing obviously formative comes from it, except the fact that I think it was just a nice loving family that I think is um, is uh, ingrained probably in me in a non-formative ways, but are everything to who I've become. And uh, but I I was a lover of English and a lover of writing and books and stories and and from the early. As far back as I remember, I wanted to be a writer, and I loved writing, and I loved um, books, and um, and 
strangely, you know, I uh, I ended up going into medicine because of my love of story and the, uh, because of love of the um, the stories that patients were were telling me uh, during a wrote during a course that I took as an undergrad, and um, and and it led me down a road where I just you know did some volunteer work and did some other work, and I and I really saw something. Uh, I felt sort of something very meaningful in medicine, uh, but it started through stories and connecting with patients through stories and listening to their stories, um, and uh, and then deciding that I would I wanted to have the training and and the expertise to be able to impact on those stories. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? I, you know, but. Medicine is so, you know, we're so data driven, right? Um, and we have large studies, you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of, of experiences. And, and we, and it's important and, and having good medicine is built on good science and good research and, and, and legitimate data. Uh, however, all the times the, well, it comes at the expense of, <sighs> these individual experiences that patients have, you know, and, uh, and so what my book is, is just like this, this one person, me grappling with some challenging situations that are quieter in nature. Like they're deep, you know, what is the right thing to do in this situation? When, when the question of what is the right thing is, is, is the first is the first thing I have to try to figure out. Um, what are those things we take for granted? Those experiences in medicine we take for granted as "quote unquote" normal that are anything but normal. Um, uh, how do we pay attention not just what patients say but what they don't say? Um, and how, how do we honor? How do we how do we become alert to those experiences? And how do we honor these experiences? How do we respond to people whose needs might seem overwhelming? or difficult to grasp, but we have to try to respond in a meaningful way. And, and how, and how can we sort of be vulnerable on the page? You know, and I feel like within the book, I'm not claiming to have the answers and I'm, I'm oftentimes, I don't come off well, uh, and, and admitting and confessing to certain situations where I got it wrong, or I, I made decisions that were not the right ones, or I made assumptions that were off the mark. Um, and so how can I sort of model this this sense of inquiry of like imperfection and and yet hopefully probing that experience and um and showing that we don't have to always be the smartest person in the room, but hopefully we have to be caring um and honest and reflective uh, in our in our um in the way we go about it. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Oh, I think it tells a story about the the fact that people come. I'm an emergency physician. Is that pe people come to the emergency department with 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 they don't come with only they they come with problems. They come with needs. They come with a need to be heard and to be seen. And I think those are universal um, experiences of, of so many of us, you know, in our daily interactions. Um, and um, and oftentimes, you know, in order for us to respond, um, to engage with others, we have to first try to understand them. Uh, and that requires, you know, that requires vulnerability on our part. 
Uh, and it also means that we have to really recognize when we're coming up against obstacles and certain constraints, hence the title. Uh, and, and, and that's okay. And that we're not going to be perfect, but, but, but making the effort matters. You quote William Carlos Williams, who said that his medical badge was the thing which gained me entrance to those secret gardens of the self. Can you describe what this means in context and what these words mean to you? Yeah, I was always struck by that line, and that's from his autobiography, of William Carlos Williams, which I loved. And people... Most people go to work and they see and they and they dress up <laughs> or they used to at least. <laughs> um, and they see people at their best. Like we're at our public cells. You know, and and medicine, especially emergency medicine, you know, we see people at the most vulnerable. Sometimes we see people when they're at their most suffering, a state of most suffering, um, when they're most exposed, where they um where they're they're scared and they're anxious. And these are powerful moments to to live and to and to and to stake out as your um, as your career and as your profession, and uh, and and I honor that and I respect that and I think both as a physician we have we must recognize the intensity of uh, and the profundity of patients' experiences. Um, and 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 we're so busy sometimes trying to you know, come up with an answer and be the smartest person in the room that we oftentimes pay less attention and focus less upon the suffering and the distress of others. And we must honor that experience as well. What does your book reveal about the state of mental health in the medical profession? What can be done to advance empathy and awareness? Uh you know, there's no, there's no secret about the fact that, you know, physicians and the medical profession is experiencing worsening burnout and depression, and there's higher rates of suicide among physicians and amongst the the regular population, at least in the United States. And so there's. You know, there's, I think, a lot of reasons for this, which um, I, I feel like everybody's experience is individual, that even though, though we have this thing, this umbrella term that we call burnout, you know, which can include things like, you know, lack of a, a lack of sense of control or a loss of a sense of accomplishment, um, a sense of powerlessness. Um, uh, it's really... People get to that point for a lot of different reasons, um, and in the book, I, you know, I describe like how some of these smaller experiences and some of the decisions that we have must make and the situations that we face can contribute to this. You know, so for for example, in the book, one of the essays describes a particular challenge that I face. You know, and that I'm that I face all the time um which is the the fact that we we have a uh, many many people who come in who are sort of who have unstable housing who have an alcohol use problem and they get brought to the er you know and oftentimes 
it is not one person. It can be 10. It can be 15. Last night when I was working, there was at least 10 people waiting. And that's and that is including an entire pod people of people who are just who are just filled already. We have a worsening substance use problem, worsening mental health problem. Um, and of course, you know, unstable housing and substance use and mental health, they're all combined in in in, in ways and 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 um however the situation I write about in the book is is it's a freezing night. It's the winter here in New England and it's a freezing night. And we have no beds in the house in our ER because everyone's boarding which means that there are patients admitted to the hospital upstairs who are waiting to go upstairs and they're there waiting for a bed to come available and there ain't going to be a bed that's going to come available for at least the morning and probably early afternoon so we are we have 30 or 40 people in the waiting room we have and i have this patient who's can be who's there solely because he was intoxicated um and he's starting to sober up and do i let him go um, and what I write about, Ari, is the fact that like when I came into work on that overnight shift, it was so cold. And I was so grateful to come into the ER. And what struck me at that moment were, was the paradox of that, which is like I'm about to discharge this guy who we've already He's been there. It was twice in one day. He's been there multiple there almost every day. He's been offered service, countless attempts at services, and he's burnt bridges. At we've done a lot of things for him. This is a, a, someone who has who comes in many, 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 many times um, in a month, and if not a week, um, and it's of course service as evidence of larger systemic problems, but I'm about to discharge him, you know, cause I need that bed cause there's 40 people in the waiting room, you know? And the thing is, is that if I keep him around, he's going to go and probably go into alcohol withdrawal. And if I give him medicine to help, you know, thwart off his withdrawal symptoms, it can sedate him. It'll be around longer. So depending upon where you sit, so there are, I have colleagues who say, I don't care about the other people in the waiting room right now. I can't send that. I can't send this guy out. Right. And then there are other people who are saying, well, maybe this person has already had all these services. He's, you know, he, he has unstable housing. I have 30, 40 people who I don't really know what's going on. And I need to get one of them back <laughs> if I can into this space. So, Depending upon where you look, what side of the fence you're on, you can be looked at as moral or amoral, you know, kind or cold-hearted. And it's it's being and it's and it's in that moment I I call it in the book I call it compassion confusion because you know because if you to be compassionate to one person I'm compassionate to this to this gentleman means I'm being less than compassionate to the people in the waiting room. And if I'm compassionate to some to bring some people in the waiting room, I'm being in, uncompassionate to this particular person, and and that those types of decisions, those types of moral dilemmas that we don't necessarily talk about openly, um, are are really challenging. And I, and when I've written about this, you know, I've had people write to me and say, "You are a 
cold, <laughs> cold-hearted doctor. Um, so of course, you can find a place for someone like that. And the, of course, the answer is no, we can't. Um, due to staffing issues, we can't have people falling, people staying unaddressed without a nurse. They fall down. We're, there's a lot of other logistical factors. Um, and and as the weather gets colder, our <laughs> I'm I'm dreading this decision. I'll be facing this decision again and again and again, and it gets where and and, the, and those types of situations that contribute to the mental health challenges that we face, the resource limitations that that push doctors to feel the way they do. Um, I feel needs to be really more deeply examined. Which memoirs by past or present doctors most impacted you? Did any? provide a template for the book that you wrote are there any in particular that are moving to you or that have been influential on you in um, your thought processes that went into this book uh, you know i have a, i have many colleagues who have written books and beautiful books um you know from you know Christ, uh, christine montrose who's a, a psychiatrist um suzanne coben who just wrote wrote a, a book with the last year or two um uh, I have, uh, you know, uh, Mikhail Sikoris, who's a uh, oncologist, who's who has uh, was one of my, you know, I think he writes so achingly beautiful about issues around leukemia and patients with cancer, and has a book out now about the FDA. There's so many. I think there's too much to too many to to actually recount. And that said, I'm not a big I'm not a big memoir person. Like I don't read a lot of memoirs, um, but I love these. I love these particular books, and there are others that I that I'm uh, that I, I can't name them all because if I start listing them, I'll forget people and I'll feel terrible about them. So I'll just name the first three that come to the top of my head. Um, but they weren't really templates because this this book is not modeled in any way that 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 I have seen before, um, and the structure of the book um, is intentional. Like I, I. Uh, the pieces are all short and I didn't want to just write about, there are people out there who are so much better about writing about sort of policy and other issues about around emergency medicine that, and I'm not that person. Like my brain doesn't, like uh, these people do it better. They're better writers at that. And they're better articulators of, of, of those types of experiences. What I think I'm better at is that, you know, I'm kind of, kind of I come from a world of, of narrative and, and, and writing and narrative and narrative writing and, and going to these places that perhaps we don't really necessarily go into. So I didn't want to just write about emergency medicine. I actually wanted to take the reader into that experience. So the way that the, the books are, the book is, design is it's short experiences many of which some of which don't have clean endings um but i want to replicate that experience that to the reader of what we go through which is going from story to story to story to story and to feel that instability um and to see how one situation might not feel the same as as the previous one and how you go from a heartbreaking moment to one that of of levity and and that was intentional and i feel like that those types of experiences uh came from people outside of outside of medicine and and had to be somewhat a little bit experimental in the in the in the in the methods so it reflects the content can you comment on the relationship between stories and diagnoses? 
Can you elaborate on the relationship between poetry and science and between medicine and literature? Uh, this, uh, I, I, I feel that, uh, that there's not just a relationship that it, it, it is what we do. I mean, we, we work so hard at sort of articulating the reasons why let's say the humanities or stories are important to medicine. And for me, it is medicine. Like that's what got me into medicine. Like the two are, but we don't acknowledge it, but it is. And so for, for people, who, for your listeners and your audience who might not be in medicine, like there's a there's a, a way of organizing experiences in medicine where on the medical chart, and one of it, it includes like the history of present illness, where we talk about everything that's going on, the symptoms, there's a past medical history, there's a social history, and it's a list of things, okay? And sometimes they could be very, very thorough, right? And yet there are times that we can be so intent on trying to trying to document and catalog an experience that we don't necessarily get at the patient's story. You know, and the difference between that and a story is like a story is built on three things. There's three elements of a story. Um, and it's like, it's a captivating character or a protagonist who has desires and there are obstacles in the way. And that's it. That's, that's the anatomy. That's what builds stories. When you, when we read books, what gets you to turn the page is tension, conflict. What's the, okay? The person's met this obstacle. What are they going to do? What are they going to learn from this? You know, what you know? How are they going to fall for it? But you, it is always this element of like, of someone's desires getting thwarted, and what? How are they going to respond to that? And in medicine, you know, whether it's disease whether it's an injury, um, whether it's having unstable housing, whether it's not being able to afford medications or not having health insurance and can't afford the medications that you need, um, mental illness, what all these things have in common is that there are obstacles in, in our lives that we have to respond to. Um, and sometimes those obstacles are our loss of uh, self or loss of identity, um, a loss of hope, a, a control over the future. So when you look at these experiences through the lens of story, you start being open to these types of experiences. Sometimes everything's straightforward. You know, when someone has chest pain and shortness of breath and they break down to a sweat and they have diabetes and high blood pressure and they have a family history of heart problems and they're a smoker and they you get an EKG and they have a heart attack. Thank you very much. That's always nice. Doesn't oh, and that, and when that happens, we have to get it right. We have to identify that. But oftentimes, people come in with complaints or needs that are less explicit, and we have to think about stories in a more, uh, uh, I think, in a more ex expansive and capacious way to be able to perhaps get it with the very thing the patient wants us to hear. What do you hope that practicing doctors will gain from reading this book? Permission to be themselves. I think that's really at, at the at the end of it is just permission to be themselves. You know, we um, there's I, I feel like more and more there's more and more people in in medicine who are sort of trying to push back against like this algorithmic scripted nature of medicine, um, and and there's sometimes and I'm the and I'm. No one loves a good algorithm that's useful than me. That's to help sort of like that's built on evidence, built on science. Um, that helps me break down and think through a process. However, so much of what we do is not algorithmic. 
you know, uh, I quote the the narrative scholar um, Catherine Montgomery Hunter in in the book, and, and years ago, years years ago, uh, when she she's an English she's an English PhD, she spent a year on the wards at, at Hopkins, and wrote a book called The Doctor's Stories, which I think is sort of like the, the beginning of one of the seminal moments in medical humanities and in, in this thing called narrative medicine. And and she has a quote in there that has always struck me. And it's, it's, it's to paraphrase it, she's like, you know, um, medicine and, and clinicians work to perfect the maps of illness, but each patient, each experience of illness is uncharted territory. You know, so how do we, how do we, go to these places that's oftentimes patients want and need us to go to and i feel like it's on the platform of story what wisdom does your book offer to college students intending to study medicine later in their lives or careers what does your book say to high school students who dream of becoming doctors what does your book say to medical students and medical residents who are on track to become medical professionals uh I'll leave it up. I'll leave it up to them to get their message out of this. Hopefully, they see someone. I didn't write this book to to to, to express a message. If and if there is, it's just like don't don't be afraid to be you. You know, I feel like the so many of young people going into medicine nowadays. Are so or who want to go into medicine are so smart in so many different areas. Like they're not just good in in the sciences, but they're good in English and they're good and they're doing and they're talented musicians and they're artists and they're writers and they're dancers and they're and they feel like they have to leave that part of them behind when they enter medicine. And not only do I want them to sort of to, to not do that, but also encourage them that those talents and those skills and those ways of looking at the world and communicating, um, whether it's through language or your body moving in space, are going to be critical to your voice as a physician. What does your book say about professionalism in medicine? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's not a, it's, you know, that, that idea about professionalism is such a challenging topic and, you know, because uh, what it means to be a professional like 30 years ago, 40 years ago is very, I think is evolving as medicine has changed, which is not to mean that it's become, um, that it's, uh, there's something that's real, that that's that's relative and it's a moving needle. But for example, it's it's just the fact that like medicine it, years ago, like professionalism meant like wearing a white coat, you know, being if you're a male wearing a tie. Back then, it was largely males. Um, it was about a certain model of behavior, uh, and nowadays, you know, I ha I know just excellent excellent physicians who don't wear white coat. I haven't worn a white coat in years. Um, who, um, many of whom have, you know, earrings or tattoos, um, who are, um, you know, look different, 
than the standard of standard white male. <laughs> and medicine is better for that. And they are incredible and they are professional. You know, and so I feel like the, the idea of professionalism needs to move um, and advance with the diversity of physicians who are entering the field. And I, I feel that I've seen people, I've seen some old codgers, you know, who, who were quote unquote professional, and they wore a white coat that had coffee on it, that had a stained collar, or they wore a, a tie that did not match their shirt or was loosely knotted. And I'm like, that's professional. I mean, years ago, I had a, when I was working in New York, I there was a medical student who someone had a question about professionalism. Um, and because she was wearing uh, uh, jeans and a white, shirt like a t like a t-shirt top a white top um and then go she's unprofessional because she's wearing jeans she's her jeans probably cost more than anything i have she was meticulous she was so crisp her white coat was tailored and it was white and she she wore like these beautiful shoes she carried herself in such a demeanor that was wonderful and so i think we define professionalism in different ways and I'm not going to define it except to say that I think we have to be moral. We have to be, you know, caring for our patients. We have to be respectful of others. We have to be respectful of this profession that we're in. Um, and in the moral, um, and in, in the, I think the moral nature that is the foundation of medicine, which is putting patients first. Um, so I think we're at a time where the very idea of professionalism is is one that's a contested concept and one that's evolving. And I think for the better, I know this is not the answer you want or you were looking for, Ari, but um, but I, 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 you know, I'm working with a colleague on a, on a, on a book chapter on this and, um, and, and, and we're trying to point that out, the fact that, you know, we're the idea of professionalism is one that actually needs, I think, deeper, deeper conversation. Um, and we got to let go of some old habits and some old concepts to allow for um, the diversity of medicine and young physicians today. How does your book advance our understanding of trauma? Well, you know, I, I in the book, I talk about, you know, both, you know, emotional trauma and, you know, trauma, physical trauma, trauma to the body. And so I, you know, again, like I don't claim to be an expert in either one of those um, areas, but I'm an expert of my own experiences. And, and, um, and I feel like I've been, was trying to put voice to some challenging aspects of, of what we do, um, how we recognize or don't recognize particular situations that we're going through and how perhaps we need to do that. Um, and uh, and just you know the relationship between trauma to loss and 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 loss to the narrative the changing narrative acutely of a family um, and how the news we give patients sometimes after a significant trauma is life altering and one they'll remember for the rest of their lives and also how sometimes having those conversations with families can be traumatic for us as well. Um, because it's 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 hard to, it's hard to be to be we're we're at the we're at the forefront of of moments that are oftentimes nightmares to people um and uh and and we're and we're, and we're there in their nightmare 
How did you personally cope with guilt and loneliness on the job in your experience as a medical professional? I think poorly. <laughs> many people i mean it's like there's a lot of what you go through as a physician that oftentimes feels um challenging and unique and sometimes fraught with shame um and uh and i think you need trusted people that around you to to confess those feelings because uh, sometimes you feel like you're the only one who feels those things uh so my my method of 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 coping. I didn't think it was coping, but it was coping. It's always by writing. I'm I always I'm always writing. I'm always trying to figure things out um through language on the page. Um and that's always been my way of sort of processing experiences, especially difficult ones. Speaking hypothetically, can you comment on why it might be similar or different about your experience and the book that you wrote? Had you practiced medicine in a country other than the U.S. or a Western country other than the U.S., how much of the story you narrate about yourself and about your per profession could have happened analogously in a different country with a different medical system? Oh, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, I think certain experiences that I write about in the book facing death, giving people bad news, um, moving on after traumatic experiences, you know, dealing with patients with loneliness, uh, working through the pandemic in different elements in different ways. Uh, I think some of those, many of those are universal, you know, and I've had, you know, colleagues from other countries who, um, to which the book resonated with them um, in very in very meaningful ways and aligned with their experiences. And because we were all, I mean, I think regardless of what you practice, I mean, I think everyone's facing certain constraints and resource limitations and they're dealing with crowding issues and staff, staff shortages and people who are just getting sicker. Um, so I, I, I think that many of the, the issues that I, I write about uh, the, the challenges are, are somewhat universal, uh, even though it might be they're rooted uh, in the in mine um, experiences here in the U.S. and and um, but I but I I do hope and I I'm finding that a lot of the experiences resonate with a lot of my colleagues in other in other countries as well. What does your book reveal about the role of caregivers in hospitals? Can you comment on the state of physician caregiver relations? and patient-caregiver relations as you experience this and observe this? Yeah, I I wrote a, I wrote a piece in there about uh, where I recognize that the, the, the person who was probably most distressed in the room was the caregiver. And uh, it was a situation where it was a, a woman who was a patient, was an older woman who just got discharged from the hospital, who has dementia, and the... The, the the her daughter who was caring for her, you know, when I really sort of brought new eyes to the situation, she was the one who was suffering the most. And and I don't feel like we give him much attention to the the health and the mental health and supporting caregivers. Um, and we don't because they're not necessarily our patients, but they sort of are. They become in the way. Um, and I find that often 
you know, just acknowledging that how hard it is to be a caregiver to people who are their patients' caregivers goes a long way. And again, this is not, this is just stems from curiosity and, and, and noting the other people in the room and, and trying to analyze and understand their experiences. And, uh, and this is something that we can do uh, because uh, to be a caregiver is to be a, is a 24 seven job. Um, and there is data to show that, you know, people who have, you know, who are caregivers, you know, have higher rates of, you know, mental illness and they have mental and, um, uh, uh, and some worsening medical consequences of the stress of caregiving. And, um, and they don't look at it from the perspective that we have because they just consider it like, I'm not a caregiver. This is just my mom. This is just my dad. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but honestly allowing them to, uh, to honoring their experiences and allowing them to talk about what they're going through and the pressure that they're going through. And sometimes being able to sort of set up services, you know, whether it's visiting nurses or sometimes um, providing, be able to provide or other assistance for them to help them in their work is really exactly what they need and what is most important out of the visit. Can you comment on the dynamics and challenges of teamwork in the practice of medicine? Yeah, I can only talk about the uh, dynamics of teamwork in like the, my in my work in the emergency sure. department because it's you know that's that's my place where I live. Uh, it's everything you know. It's so when you're seeing when you are seeing so many people at the same time, when when patients come in and they're so sick or they have so many things going on with them, um, you need team. You need people who you trust. You know people who um, who you know who they know you, um, and. You know, I can have a extraordinarily busy and even challenging shift, but if I'm working with people who I, you know, I know who I, uh, who who are superb, who are just really experienced and know what they're doing, um, it makes everything like it makes it just it contains it can change the texture of an entire ship, and plus and plus, we provide better care. We provide better care to patients, um, and and oftentimes doesn't help. Does it? It doesn't hurt if they're funny too. So a lot of you know a lot of times just the humor and being able to sort of process difficult experiences through through just you know just the repartee and banter of being in the ER is also very helpful. So you know I I. I from like, from nurses to ER techs to the unit managers to the secretaries, I mean everyone, everyone is so important, um, and and um, and everyone is critical to um, not just us having a good shift, but providing good care for patients and um, and and hopefully like leaving the ship knowing that we did a good job. What misconceptions about the medical profession does your book debunk? I, I don't know if I debunk anything except the fact that I feel like we need to emphasize the humanities and narrative more. You know, it's like we, 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 we're so intent on uh, in medicine about having the right answers. Uh, and we have this reductionist mindset, which is, and critical, and it's really important. And there's a reason why we have that. Um, precision is important in medicine. However, 
it's we also need to think more openly and more creatively um and bring different ways of knowing and knowledge to to our work um and that's important too and i think also i would love to just be able to people to come out of that saying that you know we're not going to be perfect um uh, it's really hard when you're working with uncertainty and and you're dealing with incomplete information under certain time constraints to do that um but i feel like we can always be better uh we can always be more open-minded and bring different tools to our task and uh and we need to be forgiving when when things don't go as as well as we anticipated. Which doctors do you consider your personal role models? Oh, I've had a number of physicians over the years who I think have um, have impacted, you know, my my decision to go into medicine. But you know, I had <laughs> um, I, I think the people who I've been have been most formative for me in my in my career are those people who are really passionate about the moral the moral center of medicine you know i went into medicine with a, a, a especially emergency medicine with a social justice mission and uh and and oftentimes the the people who have really helped helped contribute to my understanding of what it means to be a physician and to be an emergency physician are oftentimes just people who don't even realize that they've impacted me. Uh, and, you know, over my, I've been doing this for close to 30 years and, and, and I, and I have colleagues, you know, younger colleagues who indirectly or directly have, have modeled for me certain, certain pathways, certain understanding, certain perspectives. Um, and, and, I think that what's important is just to be open to like all the potential teachers around you, even when you get old like me. Mm-hmm. And um, and also to recognize the fact that I think my greatest teachers really have been my patients. Can you comment on your relationship with your family during your medical career? How did your spouse and children experience your medical work? Were they impacted in any way? I, I think that's a question you have to ask my wife and my son. I mean, it's uh, it's hard to. I mean, I I I, I will confess that you know, being um, being an emergency physician, it was in this, and as someone who sort of internalizes a lot, like I, I had to work a lot on not bringing my work home with me, which was which was not always easy. Um, and being an emergency physician, you know, who I still work evenings, I work nights, overnights, um, you know, dealing with someone who is, um, I feel like I spent a large part of my career tired. I still feel that way. Um, uh, I, I think as I've gotten older, I've tried to be better at trying to leave work at work. Um, and I failed, I'm failing at it, but I think, um, I'm actually trying to find a better balance in what I bring home with me and what I don't. And I think in the end, I'm just very grateful for having, you know, my wife and my son and, and people there um, for me uh, because, you know, it's, it's really nice when, when you're facing certain things to be able to come home and, uh, and have people there who, who you love and who love you.
You present an epigraph by Anton Chekhov. The task of a writer is not to solve the problem, but to state the problem correctly. What is this quotation's significance? How does it relate to the practice of medicine? Well, that's that's it. I mean, if we if we're talking about the centrality of story and trying to understand an experience, and let's you know, let's not forget, Ari, that if we don't get the story right, like the, the, the you know, doesn't make a difference how much technology we have or how much knowledge we have and available to us the best medicine doesn't work on the wrong story. So we have to make sure we get the story right first and foremost before we move forward. And that oftentimes involves like, a, you know, understanding the role of story, which is it's not a platform of information to then find an answer to. Uh, I think about narrative, um, a similar quote, a similar message gets conveyed by the narrative scholar, Jerome Bruner, who said that, you know, great narrative is, um, is about problem finding, not problem solving, you know, and it's about the path, not the road to, it's about the path of the road, not the end to which it leads. So our attention should be there. Um, and I feel like if we think about it with a diagnosis or an end in mind, we're making these decisions about what is important and what's unimportant information. So, you know, what Chekhov is alluding to and what, what Bruner is alluding to is a sense of openness, you know, that before we start closing too quickly, too urgently, too impatiently, we have to be open. And I feel like sometimes the most important thing that I do for patients is to ask them different types of questions. And I think they respect that because that it expresses us and reflects a certain curiosity. And I think in a, on an authentic desire to try to appreciate their experience. Can you tell us about Anton Chekhov's piece, Misery, which shows up in your book? Can you describe Iona Potatov as she is depicted in the story? Can you comment on the relationship between this story and this character in relation to the themes in your book? Yeah, in the in that particular book, um, that particular story by, a famous story by Anton Chekhov, and it's called Misery. It's been translated differently in, um, in other translations. But, you know, it's a, about a cabman, you know, who, you know, whose son has recently died. And we find him snowy night, not picking up anybody. And he's like, he has no money. And he's trying to get money just to feed his horses because it's the cast, an old carriage with a horse-drawn carriage. Um and and the people he does pick up are just not kind to him. <laughs> um, they're if not cruel to him, and uh, and he's trying to sort of talk about the death of his son, and they don't care, you know. And in the end, it's snowing, and he goes back to his lodging, which he shares with the with other people, and uh, and he keeps on trying to share his experience and talk about the death of his son. And no one will listen. And in the end, you know, the story ends with a, a horse, his horse, like he goes out, he doesn't have enough money for oats, he's just giving him hay. And um and the image of of the the him talking with his horse and, and sort of warming his hands um on the horse's breath. 
and that moment of connection and that moment of loneliness. And I always thought about that piece in the context of what I do, because there are a lot, like what if this patient came to the ER? <laughs> what if this patient who's so profoundly grieving and has no one to talk to comes to the ER? Because I feel like there are, there are it's not uncommon, like we're facing a terrible loneliness problem in this country. Uh, you know, would I pick up on that? You know, would they tell me that they're lonely? Most people don't. As an excuse, they might say it's chest pain. It might be just shortness of breath. It might be I have weakness. Um, and what would my response to that be? Would I actually have enough time and curiosity and caring on a busy overnight, for example, to actually be receptive to what's between the lines of, of their complaint? Um, and would I make them, would I, would I respond in a way that I think I should or, or would I not, or would I be so busy that I blew them off too? And would I make matters worse and, and exacerbate their loneliness? So it was really a piece is about acknowledging the power um, and the problem of, of, of loneliness in people's lives. Uh, and, and also sort of serves as a, as a window into another type of experience that brings people to the emergency department and our responsibility to them. Can you share with us the story of Cheryl? Can you explain who she is and what happened to her? Cheryl in chapter three. Yeah. Um, this is a, a pivotal piece for me and it's, um, it's where the, the title story, um, the title of the book comes from Tornado of Life. And she was getting, she was someone who has experienced a whole set of just woes in her life. She had substance use issues. She had mental health challenges. She had housing issues. Um, and she got brought in in the middle of the night um, for, for making a, a ruckus at the, at the shelter. And then when she came in, she was screaming, but then she wouldn't talk to us. She wouldn't talk to me. And and most of us, when we have, most of us are fortunate to have a floor. Like we can't drop that far, but, but many people don't have that. Like they just, like they're constantly trying to catch up with life. They get, they don't have a break. They have no support network. Um, one woe leads to another sense of woes. And, and she, and unfortunately, you know, Cheryl was, was one of those, one of those people who just was just, it was just, life has not been kind to her. Um, and then eventually she said to me, you know, when I asked like, what, what was the matter and what I can do for her? She said, like, I'm, I'm stuck in a tornado of life. And I, I just, I thought that her, that was such a powerful statement and her suffering was so, was felt so acute and so difficult to put to words. And yet when she did, she came up with language that was so beautiful and poetic and powerful. And, um, and as I write in the book, it it's, it it lent itself to a certain type of response about the narratives that we experience in medicine. How does your book advance our knowledge and memory of the COVID nineteen pandemic? Can you contextualize your book in light of the events of COVID nineteen? Yeah, it's not a COVID book. I have a couple of COVID essays in the mm -hmm. book because I wrote the book during COVID, and um, and I try to like. I tried to articulate experiences that were not 
written about as much because there was so much written um, during the pandemic by by physicians and and you know wonderful stuff written. And so, you know, I wrote about like what what it's like to sort of wait for the surge and and how I felt it was the paradoxical feeling of at the beginning of the pandemic of feeling most safe when at work with the people who I I work with, who I trust. Um, I, I wrote about the the power of story and perhaps helping us understand each other and our decisions to be vaccinated. Um, and uh, yeah. And so I tried to sort of you know, write about those particular issues that were sort of, that I feel like was being sort of left out a little bit um, or it's not spoken of in the way that, that I felt like I wanted to fill in the gaps of all the brilliant stuff that was already being written about. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, what are you working on next as a current project? Is there anything you're working on now or that you're invested in now that you would be interested to share with us? Uh, I'm always writing, you know, and mm. so, uh, you know, I I am working on a, another book length project now as well. And um, and uh, one is nonfiction and, and one is actually fiction I, my, my first two books were were fiction this one's not um tornado of life is non-fiction and uh and yeah so you know working clinically in the er um and working on these um trying to tackle these two other projects so nothing specifically to share to folks right now is i'm still you know i'm still in i'm still in it um and uh but i'm, I'm very excited about about the direction of these projects and i you know, fingers crossed. I hope I have enough time uh, to and brain space uh, to to put to them. I wish you the very best. I wholeheartedly wish you the very best. Thank you so much, Ari. It was a real pleasure to be here and to talk about my book with you. As we bring our dialogue today to a, a close, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I've been honored to be in dialogue with Dr. Jay Baruch. He is Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Alpert Medical School at Brown University. We have been discussing his new book, Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the Emergency Room, published by MIT Press 2022. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ari.